Hello, and welcome to a new podcast for the June issue of The Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology. I'm Gavin Cleaver. In our new issue, there's a paper on the global prevalence of hepatitis B infection, and I'm delighted to be joined today by authors of that paper, Dr. Homi Razavi and Dr. Devon Razavi Shearer. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Your study set out to estimate the global prevalence of hepatitis B infection. What sets this study and methodology apart from other published estimates, for example, from WHO and from the global burden of disease? So there, there's a few things to take into account when examining why this is different. The, the first is the method we use, which is a Delphi method. And so we go through a, what would be a traditional literature review, and then we choose what we find to be the most representative study of the country. And this includes excluding blood donors as they are not representative, uh, they're, they're most often not representative of the general population. And then going further and meeting with experts either by phone or uh, in person to validate these findings that we found and see if there is any additional data that we were missing and if they have any uh, unpublished literature that can help strengthen our analysis. So that, that's really the first part. And for this paper, we had met with experts from 78 countries of the 120 countries that we modeled uh, prior to publication. Now, the second part of how this really differs is we use a dynamic Markov model that has been validated to show that it is able to predict service antigen prevalence in the future. And what this model does is it takes into account historical prophylaxis, so birth dose, three dose, immunoglobulin, as well as antiviral treatment of mothers and catch-up vaccination programs. And then we're able to say, looking at a historical uh, prevalence study, say what the prevalence should be today based on their interventions. And the important part of this prophylaxis as well is that we, when we talked to the experts in these countries, we also asked them about their vaccination coverage because unfortunately there is many wildly different definitions regarding birth dose. And so we made sure that when we were inputting birth dose, it truly was timely birth dose within 24 hours, as well as there's been uh, some differences in reporting what the WHO and UNICEF reports versus what some countries have reported. The most, uh, the largest example of this being China, which if you base your data, which we initially did on the WHO UNICEF report, it says that three dose started in the year 2000 and birth dose started in 2004, when if you look at uh, a recent publication in 2017 that really goes back examining their entire prophylaxis uh, and prevalence studies, three dose started in 1985 and birth dose started in 92, so a difference of 15 years it has a massive impact on what the model would predict in the future. And, and so that is, that's the other part that really set us apart. And what's important is there's the modeling portion, uh, but then the question is how well does the model predict? Um, and what we did was we spent a lot of time actually uh, validating the model by comparing um, hepatitis B prevalence at two points in time. Um, so countries like China, U.S., South Korea, uh, they actually have data uh, on hepatitis B prevalence uh, two points in time. Um, so, and in fact, uh, the the model comes within five percent 
uh, of the actual data uh, when we calibrate it to the first data point and then compare it to the second data point. Um, so, in, in fact, we, we know that the model works uh, because of these, uh, the, these calibration and these validations that we've gone through. Well, so your study it also provides estimates about treatment coverage for those infected with hepatitis B with, with some rather sobering results. Can you talk about some of these results and what are the implications of them for delivery of care and gaps in care in different regions? So I think, as you see, the, tr the treatment's been getting a lot of uh, coverage as well as the diagnosis. And, of course, you can't treat people if they're not diagnosed. So I think one of the things to look at is in much of sub-Saharan Africa, when you look at the paper, there's very low diagnosis but there, and there's also very low treatment. And so this is an area that needs to be focused on, whereas in some other regions, uh, such as Oceania, East Europe, and Central Europe, you don't have a high diagnosis, but you have a higher diagnosis, but still very low treatment. So there, clearly the issue is getting people connected to care, getting people in treatment. And then there are, there are uh, regions that are doing better uh, in the Asia-Pacific high-income region using GBD region, they, that region has, has the funds and the ability to target this disease, and they've been very worried about it, having public health campaigns, initiating some of the vaccination for almost 40 years at this point. And so they really have been able to diagnose and treat and are working towards the elimination. And you also have country, or regions such as Western Europe, uh, New Zealand and North America that have higher treatment rates than uh, much of the rest of the world. And in these populations, there tends to be uh, the, the prevalence can be found uh, more easily than not just general population screen where the, where the prevalence is often low, but you can do targeted screenings, whether that be immigrants or indigenous peoples and nations. Now, building on what Devin said, what was interesting is when we looked at the data by the World Bank income level, um, that in fact, diagnosis and treatment is quite high in high-income countries, um, but it, it drops significantly in low and lower middle income. Um, so clearly, there's a gap uh, in terms of access to both screening as, as well as treatment uh, based on the income level of the, of the countries. Uh, the other thing that was a little disturbing was the uh, the, the, the how often lamivudine is still being used. Uh, so lamivudine is a first-generation antiviral that causes resistance. Um, and in fact, uh, a number of countries, including China, continue to use lamivudine as a, a first line, uh, which is quite disturbing. It's, it's been pretty well documented that, uh, that it does cause resistance, and in fact, it's in none of the guidelines. So if you look at the European uh, Association for the Study of Liver, American Association for the Study of Liver, WHO guidelines, none of them list lamivudine as, uh, as an option, uh, yet it continues to be used as a treatment. What implications do these results have with respect to towards efforts to eliminate viral hepatitis globally in line with the WHO targets? I think they show that there's a tremendous amount of work that is going to be needed to be undertaken in order to really reach for elimination. And this is specifically for diagnosis and treatment. There, of course, is also the issue of uh, timely birth dose, 
which though it has been improving, it is still quite low, uh, particularly in low-income countries and low, lower-middle-income countries. And unless countries really decide to take hepatitis B seriously and make it a priority, uh, there's no way in which many of these countries are going to be able to meet these targets. Yeah, uh, just building on what Devin says is that uh, I, I see the glass as, as half empty. Um, it's quite frustrating uh, that uh, since, since vaccines have been available since 1980s, antivirals uh, since the 1990s, that we, in fact, we still have not achieved the, the elimination targets. Our estimates are that every 30 seconds someone dies of hep B, um, and yet uh, that this is a disease that still um, does not receive a lot of uh, funding and access. So, so it's important to point that um, you know a lot of the global health organizations provide uh, tenofovir for HIV in, in African, low-income countries in Africa. That, that's provided free of charge. But the same drug cannot be used for Hep B. It, it's not actually reimbursed. Uh, so the patients infected with Hep B have to pay for it. Um, and, and of course, you know, lack of access does have an impact on disease burden. Um, so we really do need to do a lot more to provide access across, across the world, but especially in, in low and low middle income countries. Well, that said, though, what are some of the more positive messages that come out of the study? What, what targets have been met? The most positive story for hepatitis B, of course, is where immunization programs have been longstanding, robust, and continue to be so. So based on our projections, out of the 120 countries that we analyzed in the study, 72 will meet the WHO target of less than or equal to 0.1% prevalence in five-year-olds by 2030. And additionally, 28 countries will be less than 1% by 2020. Now, they, those 28 countries won't meet the 2030 target, but they will meet the 2020, which shows you know, they're working towards this elimination and with some expanded access, additional measures, this can be reached. And so I think that this the prophylaxis is the good story because you're able to reduce incidence and you're able to stop the you're able to stop additional cases of delta by eliminating hepatitis B and you're able to really uh, reach these targets now on the flip side there are 20 countries that are not on track and most of these countries are in sub-Saharan Africa or island nations in the Pacific or countries that uh, have been engaged in civil conflict for quite some time. And really, the, a common factor in these is, countries is that they have not implemented birth dose or additional prophylaxis measures. So that's one of the take-home messages, really, is the implementation of birth dose and the need for it to be widely available. Yeah, we want to give a big nod to uh, to China, um, you know, the most populous country in the world, and over 95% of the births uh, receive birth dose as well as three dose. Um, in terms of simply just the logistics of what it takes to vaccinate, um, the, all that you know, every baby that's born, um, it, it's quite impressive. Um, and, and really, the, China is, is really driving uh, the, uh, much of the, if we look at the global estimate in terms of the infection among five-year-olds, um, they have done an amazing job. 
Now, uh, you know, most people look at China and say that it's an upper middle income country, they should be able, but in fact, China has incredibly low income provinces and, and they've been able to achieve that across all of those provinces, uh, which is quite impressive. Yeah, that is quite impressive. That's uh, quite the logistical feat. So what does what does the data tell us in terms of priority areas for, for action going forward? Um, the first priority is to turn off incidents, uh, to reduce incidents, and, and that's really vaccination, vaccination, vaccination. Um, vaccinations are quite inexpensive um, and, and they're quite accessible. Uh, Gavi provides three-dose vaccines uh, in, uh, in low-income countries and low-middle-income countries for free, actually. Um, and yet the, uh, the vaccination rates in sub-Saharan Africa remain low. Um, so um, really the first priority is to make sure that the vaccination rates go up. Um, and and uh, so to reduce the number of new infections. Uh, once that's accomplished, then the focus is really on dealing with the burden uh, that, that already exists. So those who are already infected. Um, and, and that's really diagnosis and treatment. Um, as we know, the high-income countries are doing quite well, but really expand 